This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to the special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As has become a tradition in finishing up a presidential series, I asked you, the listeners, to provide questions, any questions that you had on Jefferson, on his presidency, on individuals you may have talked about, on his times, just any questions that you still had remaining in your mind as we wrap up the series on the presidency of Thomas Jefferson. For those of you who have been listening as episodes were released, this has been quite a journey, two and a half years with Jefferson. As I'm finishing up a series, I find myself reflecting, trying to answer in my own mind whether I've done due diligence to the individuals that we've discussed, to the topics, to the time. And so I really like having this Q&A episode as kind of an opportunity to make sure if there are any gaps that I miss, to kind of help to fill those in. Also, I always love an opportunity to be able to respond to listeners, to be able to answer any additional questions. I love doing that on social media in real time, but this also becomes something that folks have moving forward just to see maybe there's something that they had been thinking this entire time as we've been going along, and maybe this answers your question as well. So even if you didn't have a chance to submit a question, I hope that you will take something valuable from this exercise. Now, for most of the questions, I'll be speaking more extemporaneously, but there were a couple of questions that I felt really necessitated finding some facts and figures just to be able to make sure that I fully answer the question. Also with those, I do have some resources that I'll make available through links on the website. The website is, of course, presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. And with that said, let's get to the first question. The first question I have is actually a multi-part question. What was the state of newspapers in the Jefferson era? Were there still Federalist ones? Any with more of a neutral slant? And how would they receive news from Europe, especially about Napoleon? Print media in the U.S. continued on its booming expansion in the decades after Washington first assumed office in 1789. Historian Alan Taylor notes in his American Republics that, quote, the 100 newspapers of 1790 became nearly 400 by 1810. As settlers moved further west and established new communities, so too were new presses established. Now, one that we really need to talk about at this time is the National Intelligencer. I've mentioned it numerous times in the narrative, but this was a very pro-Jefferson newspaper in Washington, D.C. It was established intentionally to be a pro-Jefferson newspaper in the new nation's capital as the capital moved in 1800. And the first publisher and editor, Samuel Harrison Smith, and his wife, Margaret Chase Smith, became very close friends with Jefferson and the Madisons. The National Intelligencer was described by historian Robert Allen Rutland as, quote, 
setting the political tone for the rest of the country's print media. Now, at the time, smaller presses often just copied stories and content from larger papers, much along the lines of how newspapers and news sites use AP and Reuters content nowadays, though at that time there was not really a formal deal giving permission for this. But the larger papers were really okay with that because at that time their aims in establishing papers were typically political. And so with this original content being shared in numerous papers across the nation, it meant that their ideas, these political opinions would be spread far and wide and would help the party overall. Now, on the Democratic-Republican side, even though the National Intelligencer was the leading paper, there was also the Philadelphia Aurora and the New York Evening Post. Also, Thomas Ritchie's Richmond Inquirer was becoming the leading Democratic-Republican newspaper in the South. And it would be a major force in politics for decades to come. And I have no doubt that we will be talking about Thomas Ritchie and the Richmond Inquirer before too long. On the Federalist side, the Columbian Sentinel from Boston was, as described by Rutland, quote, the voice of federalism in New England, if not the nation. Now, to the question about Federalist newspapers, there were, in fact, still Federalist newspapers around at this time and would remain so for quite a while after this. But most Federalist newspapers following Jefferson's ascent into office were generally found in the Northeast from Baltimore on up the coast through New England. Now, occasionally there would be one established elsewhere, such as the Western world in Frankfort, Kentucky. But by and large, as the Federalist Party became an increasingly sectional rather than national party, so too did Federalist newspapers either shift in their political ideologies or shut down. Now, there weren't really papers with a neutral stance as we would think of it nowadays. As with modern papers, there would be notices and advertisements that made up a sizable portion of the content and that would help to pay the bills. However, the editors generally dictated the political leaning of the paper. And there were, of course, some editors and some papers that were more radical and more extreme than others, but part of what got them their subscriptions was the political content. Also, quite possibly, if the editor and the newspaper favored one faction or another that came into power, they may possibly win a lucrative government printing contract. So it really did pay for them to be political. Now, in terms of receiving news from Europe, They received news from Europe much as others did, which came through letters or word of mouth arrived on ships from Europe. This is part of the reason why we see the leading papers in port cities on the East Coast at that time, as the news would come in there and then filter out to other papers across the nation. Now, these papers didn't really have correspondence on assignment like they do now in the modern era, but many of the publishers and editors of the main papers would have contacts in places like London and Paris, and these contacts in turn would pass along information, or the editors or publishers would get information from government officials, who also, especially in the State Department, would have direct contact with folks in these European capitals and could tell them what was going on. And likewise, because these were papers on the East Coast and port cities, merchants would especially be interested in what was going on 
probably more so than folks in other parts of the nation, because their business may be directly impacted by what was going on with the Napoleonic Wars, you know, with what the stance was of Britain or France on neutral trading. So they would really have an interest in, well, what's Napoleon up to? What's going on with the second coalition, the third coalition, the fourth coalition, and so on? That content would be really relevant to them. So they would want as much information as they could get. However, it was also very limited because communication overall was limited, as we've discussed. So speaking of Napoleon, the next question was, what was the Jefferson administration's policy towards and disposition of Napoleonic France? Were there ever any military missions between the two nations? So this was actually one of the biggest misconceptions at the time and is something that even with modern students of history, we can sometimes struggle with because Jefferson does have this reputation of being a Francophile. And indeed, he loved France. He spoke longingly of his time in France, and he was very much in support of the French Revolution and the ideals. He advised Lafayette when it came to the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. So during his presidency, and even after, he still, in the, the public mind, he, they still kind of perceived him as being this, this, this Francophile. However, Jefferson really did not like Napoleon. He didn't trust him. He didn't see Napoleonic France as being a true product of the French Revolution, even though Napoleon couched himself in that ideal. And really, he wasn't. I mean, that wasn't what Napoleon was about. He wasn't about the revolution. He wasn't about those ideals. He was about power. Also, as we've seen in the Jefferson presidency, time and time again, Napoleon and his government would promise the moon and just not deliver. And so increasingly over time, they got jaded. Yes, there was the triumph of the Treaty of the Louisiana Purchase, but that was more of a rarity than standard operating procedure. And it was more out of necessity for Napoleon needing the funds than it was in really building that relationship. So in terms of his disposition towards Napoleonic France, he really wasn't well disposed towards Napoleon and his government. Now, in terms of policy, naturally, Jefferson, as his predecessors had been, had to navigate this balancing act between Britain and France. A, so much of the nation's trade at the time was predicated on keeping both of those relationships. They didn't really want to go to war, and especially Jefferson, because Jefferson was all about smaller military. He was all about staying out of those European entanglements, those European wars. He didn't want war. And so he wanted to keep peace with France. He was challenged to do that at times because Napoleon, again, would kind of renege on promises, would be very stealthful and maybe alluding to something, but not wanting to commit anything to paper. And also, at the time, 
you know, we've talked a great deal about British impressment, but the French government was also seizing American vessels. And there were many tensions about that. We'll actually be talking a bit more about that in the Madison series because this kind of comes to a head with Madison trying to keep this balance between the two, but then being kind of backed into a corner and being forced to choose. But in terms of the policy, it really was trying to keep neutral trade going with both Britain and France, not ending up in a conflict with France, if at all possible. So even though Jefferson and even though members of his government really didn't trust the Napoleonic government, didn't trust Napoleon, they still did all they could to walk that fine line and to keep relations good. Now, in terms of military missions between the two nations, that was really, and we go back to Washington's farewell address and his plea to avoid foreign entanglements. At this time, and for a good long period of time in American foreign policy, administrations tried to avoid having these military alliances of kind of being aligned with one power against another. And especially in this case, again, trying to maintain that balance, even though Jefferson did have to consider at times, and there was one point where he really did think he was going to have to commit some sort of alliance with Britain against France. He really didn't want to get into an, a military alliance like that. He really didn't want to have a military that really could do anything besides defend the nation. That was part of his justification for shrinking the size of the army and really trying to relegate the Navy to being more of this gunboat fleet versus ships that could sail the high seas because, A, he wanted to avoid those military conflicts, and B, he wanted to make it harder for his successors as president to be able to do so. He felt that that was detrimental to the future of the nation. And in particular, his idea, the Jeffersonian idea of democracy, small d democracy, he felt that a large military and military alliances would damage that. So no, there weren't really any military missions that were planned out or, or military alliances between France and the United States during Jefferson's time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, our next question takes us a bit away from policy and more to kind of Jefferson's day-to-day. The question is, did Jefferson have any beloved pets? Now, as a Virginia planter, there were, of course, countless numbers of animals involved in his farming operations. But most of these wouldn't be what we really think of as pets nowadays. However, there are a few animals with whom Jefferson had kind of a, a special affinity. The first notable one is Caractacus. 
who is the most well-known of his riding horses, according to Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. This horse was born on May 7, 1775, from a mare owned by Jefferson and a stallion owned by William Dandridge. Now, his name comes from a first-century CE British Catavallani chieftain who made a stirring speech to the Roman Senate after being captured, after which he was granted his freedom and allowed to live as a free man in Rome. The horse Caractacus was notable enough to Jefferson that he tracked the horse's lineage as far back as he could in his farm book. According to the later recollections of Isaac Granger Jefferson, one of the individuals that Jefferson enslaved, when the British invaded Richmond in 1781, it was Caractacus who carried Jefferson to safety. Jefferson was also interested in introducing certain European animal species to America, one of which was the shepherd's dog. Thus, he brought back with him from France three French dogs, including a shepherd's dog named Berger. He wasn't so much concerned about putting her to work guarding sheep, as he had none at the time. Jefferson's intentions with Berger were for breeding a branch of shepherd's dogs for America. He would acquire more shepherd's dogs as well as sheep over the years. Berger's line, however, always earned extra praise from Jefferson, and he would take one of her puppies indoors at Monticello in 1795 in order to cure his grandson Jeff of his fear of dogs. The animals that we can truly call pets at Monticello, however, are Jefferson's pet mockingbirds. He purchased his first one in early November 1772 when his eldest daughter Martha was only a month old. It was purchased from one of the people that Jefferson's father-in-law, John Wales, enslaved. From that time on, there would always be at least one mockingbird in Jefferson's household. He even brought one to France with him, and he had mockingbirds at the president's house during his tenure there. The most famous of his mockingbirds, and the one that seems to have been his favorite, was named Dick. Margaret Bayard Smith described Jefferson's, quote, peculiar fondness for Dick, not only for its melodious powers, but for its uncommon intelligence and affectionate disposition, of which qualities he gave surprising instances. It was the constant companion of his, i.e. Jefferson's, solitary and studious hours. Given all that we already cover in the podcast, we don't often get around to talking about pets, so I greatly appreciate this question. Talking about presidential pets is always something fun, and it's interesting to see some of the stories that come out of the White House related to creatures of the four-legged variety. So I greatly appreciate this question. Now, the next few questions are a bit more opinion-based. And we'll start with, if you could interact with Jefferson in the present day, how would you explain his very complex legacy to him? Well, I think I would approach it much as I have this series. I think that I would approach it as I do approach all my work with the podcast. The figures that we discuss and study in history are people, just like us. They have their good parts, they have their bad, they have their blind spots. And I've said this before to folks, I think it is important to critique history. I think it is important to explore the complexities of it and not either completely glorify or completely condemn any figure because we too will be criticized by future generations for things that we're doing, for things that we've allowed to happen, for things that society has condoned or ignored and future generations may feel differently about. We, too, will be judged. I think that's how I would explain it to Jefferson. 
I'm thinking about my conversation a few months ago with Jess and Howard of Plotting Through the Presidents about Jefferson's legacy and how in so many great ways and in so many awful ways, his legacy continues to resonate in the present day. We're still dealing with Jefferson's legacy. And I don't know that there is going to be a conclusion to that. I don't know that there is a way to sum it up, but I'd hope that I could help to walk Jefferson through his actions and his thoughts and the legacy that that left. And I imagine that just like with us, in hindsight, he would do a few things differently. The next question keeps us in that moral strain, and it's a multi-part question. How do we balance Jefferson's importance versus his moral failing? Does it seem like this generation is struggling with this question more than prior generations? And if so, why do you think that is? I think that one of the things that we've been dealing with, at least in my lifetime, is the confirmation of Jefferson's parentage of the children of Sally Hemings. Now, it wasn't completely unknown, and indeed, in Dumas Malone's six-volume biography of Jefferson, Malone studied it and had trouble reconciling the fact that nine months prior to the birth of Sally Hemings' children, Jefferson was always at Monticello, no matter what else was going on. But to have the DNA evidence now and to have stronger confirmation of that, we have had to ask ourselves different questions. But the questions that we have to ask are not just about Jefferson. It's about ourselves. Why did so many scholars struggle and try to deny that Jefferson had children with Sally Hemings? Why wouldn't they accept the word of Madison Hemings that he was Thomas Jefferson's son? So much of history is based on what one person said, but why was his voice deemed unworthy of respect for so long? I think that's what we're struggling with right now. At a time where fake news is a commonly known term, and we're asking now more than ever, who can we trust and what can we trust? I think Likewise, we're struggling with our history and of having times that we didn't trust and ignored history for prejudicial and racial reasons because of this legacy and taking it back to Jefferson and trying to balance his importance versus his moral failing. I don't know that it's necessarily a balance. I think that part of his importance is in his moral failing. As I said with the last question, it's important to face those legacies and to face them honestly. History isn't what we want it to be. History is what it was. Our only choice is how we approach the sources that we have for history and try as best we can to understand, trying as best we can to push our own biases and preconceived notions aside and see history for what it was, for what we can understand it to have been. Because ultimately, that legacy is important to help us, to guide us in moving forward. We have to understand where we've been in order to understand where we are. We have to understand where we've been to plot out where we want to go. Jefferson's moral failings, the problematic parts of Jefferson, 
are important to study, are important to understand. Likewise, I think that the best parts of Jefferson, the inspiration, we don't talk as much about that in the present day because we've talked about it for so long. And I think we struggle with certain abstract principles, especially when we've heard the word so much and it's become rote memory. How do we connect to these words? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Generations of Americans have heard those words, but do we truly reflect on what they mean for us and how we want to carry that forward? We get so caught up in the day-to-day minutia. We get so caught up in the modern struggles and the modern debates that sometimes those words just seem like etchings on marble. It's up to us to make them alive. And I think that's what we struggle with. But part of why I love studying history is understanding that people of the past struggled with that as well. It's not just us. We have things that make our time unique. We also have connections to the past, to prior generations, to those who came before. And it's important to consider that and to struggle with that as we help to inspire future generations. The next question, again, a multi-part question. Do you think Jefferson gets more criticism than Washington because Jefferson's beliefs on race survived? If more of Washington's letters on the subject survived, would he be tainted as much as Jefferson? If not, what is the difference between the men? So it's interesting, as folks like Edward Coles and the Marquis de Lafayette tried to approach Jefferson about emancipating the people that he enslaved and being more vocal about bringing about an end to slavery. They did turn to Washington as an example. Now, Washington, we do know a bit about his views on race and slavery. In some ways, he was a product of his time. He didn't necessarily like the system of slavery. He talked at times about getting out of it, about wanting to end his dependence on enslaved labor. He never did during his lifetime. We do have to note that he did make provisions for freeing the enslaved individuals under his direct control in his will, which is a step beyond what Jefferson did. But I'd say that one other key difference between them, in Jefferson's writings, we never get a sense that he really questioned or deviated from this belief that the people that he enslaved were inferior, were not fully human. He never seemed to question his paternalistic views of the people that he enslaved. We do get instances in Washington's existing papers that he did have times where he questioned that. He also was a business person. He knew his bottom line. And case in point, we see it with the case of Ona Judge, where Washington exploits his public office in order to try and recapture a person that he enslaved. I think that there is room for criticism of both, and ultimately both were 
the enslavers of individuals up until their last dying breath. I think beyond their existing papers, I think more so why there's been more discussion of Jefferson's views on race goes back to something that I discussed in one of the previous questions, which is the discussion, increased discussion of Sally Hemings and Jefferson's parentage of her children. I think the fact that that is still rather fresh and has inspired so many conversations and studies, I think that's part of the reason why it seems like it's talked about more. For those interested in learning more about Washington's views on race, I would recommend Erica Armstrong Dunbar's Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave Ona Judge, Henry Winesex's An Imperfect God, George Washington, His Slaves, and the Creation of America, and Francois Furstenberg's In the Name of the Father, Washington's Legacy, Slavery, and the Making of a Nation. Finally, the last question is, and I promise I did not pay anybody to ask this question, although I was planning on giving you my two cents anyway. After studying the complicated figure, do you find you like Jefferson more or less than you did when you began? So I will admit that I came into the series and I had struggled with my thoughts on Jefferson. Part of how I got into podcasting was actually the inspiration of the first podcast I ever listened to, which was the Thomas Jefferson Hour. If you've never listened to it, Clay Jenkinson is amazing. He is a Jefferson scholar. He wrote a book on Meriwether Lewis. He goes into the complexities of Jefferson. And for somebody who has been studying Jefferson for decades, he is still uncovering new layers to him. And he admits that there are times that he doesn't like Jefferson that much. And for somebody to study Jefferson for decades and not always really like him, that's, it's fascinating. I don't know that I've really come to a conclusion about Jefferson. I think I can speak more to some of the points that I had thought previously about Jefferson with more detail. For example, in terms of his presidency, I don't necessarily think that he was a good president. On the presidential rankings that come out every year, every couple of years, it's always fascinating to me to see Jefferson towards the top. And I just want to scream at somebody, have you actually studied his presidency? Yes, he was influential in his work on the Declaration of Independence. Yes, he did have a long and fascinating career. And yes, he was a two-term president. And yes, he finally agreed to the Louisiana Purchase against his own better inclinations. And the impact of that, you know, we still live with to this day, especially speaking as somebody who was born in Louisiana. But when things weren't ordered, when he was questioned, when people challenged him, I don't think that Jefferson did what a president should. I don't think that he handled it well. I don't think that he was able to work the room, so to speak. And especially those last few months, and for those who listened to the episode on his last few months, the fact that Jefferson just basically washed his hands of the presidency at a time where the nation was really struggling, where the embargo was not going well. 
there was so much uncertainty. And instead of providing leadership, he just kept packing his bags and getting set to go. But I think there is one thing that has changed in the two and a half years that I've been studying Jefferson and his presidency. I think I've grown even more interested in what a conversation with Jefferson would look like. And I think that the conversation and the points that I would bring up, the topics of discussion, I think those have changed. I think it would be a richer and hopefully if he was willing to meet me in this, a more honest conversation. As a white Southerner who was born and has lived his entire life in the South, Jefferson's legacy is one that I've lived with my entire life, and that's in all of its complexity. I'm so grateful to have had this opportunity to study him, to study his presidency, to study this legacy, to reflect on it more, and hopefully in that, in the legacy that I'm trying to build, I'm better informed and better able to reach towards a legacy of good and justice. And I can only hope for the opportunity to be able to atone for when I fail. Thanks to all of you who submitted questions, and thanks to everyone who has been on this journey with me. I can only hope that you will continue on the journey with me into the Madison presidency. I was actually just talking to Alex about how it seems like this experience transitioning from one presidency to the next is always different. There are similar things about it. And I, of course, have my familiar phases where I start to worry, oh, is there some key thing that I'm going to miss? I start having a bit of imposter syndrome. Who am I to be talking about these presidencies? One of the things that I think will distinguish the Madison presidency a bit and in the way that I approach it, as those of you who have been around for quite a while and listening to these episodes and this podcast, I am, of course, going to be on the lookout for the lesser-known stories. We'll touch on, of course, the main trends, the things that are more familiar. And, of course, with Madison, that is the War of 1812. It's going to loom large over quite a portion of this series. But I think even more so than any of the three previous series, I'm starting to find these moments that are fascinating that I really haven't seen in more general coverage or discussions of the Madison presidency. It seems like with Madison, it is, in terms of his presidential years, so focused on the War of 1812, but there was so much else going on in the presidency, in the nation, in the world, and I cannot wait to be able to share that with you. I am just itching to get to there. And so with that, I will go ahead and close out this episode so that I can do just that. But thank you so much again. Thank you to all of our patrons who help to provide the support that keeps us going. Thank you to all of you who share information about the podcast, whether through social media or in person. Thanks so much to Alex Famrose for editing the audio for this episode and for shortening all of the long, dramatic pauses that I often have while speaking extemporaneously. If you'd like to get Alex's expert assistance with audio editing for your podcast, you can find the link to his Fiverr page on the page for this episode on the website. If for some reason you skipped immediately to the Q&A episode and want to go back and listen to the series, 
All past episodes are available on the website at presidencies.blueberry. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. You can also find sources that I've used for the series. You can find so much material about all the presidents, links to resources that are available. And I hope you'll join me again very soon for the first episode of the Madison pre-presidency. Until then, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.